This is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and we're running down some of the top stories of the week. Don't forget to check out the Daily Dive Monday through Friday for more news without the noise. One of the most bizarre stories of the week were these 11 children that were found at a compound in New Mexico. They were malnourished. The FBI had to raid the compound, and then we find out that they found the remains of a dead boy. And there was also reports from prosecution documents that the man at the center of the whole thing was training some of the children with assault rifles in the hopes of attempting future school shootings. It was so weird, and the story kept having all these twists and turns. Talk about a story with layers, Oscar. There's an update. It turns out that those remains found turned out to be the missing Georgia toddler with the disabilities. The boy's grandfather has said that in speaking to relatives, many of whom were people who lived at this compound, they confirmed it to him. So we spoke to Ryan Morrow. He's a national security analyst who was really at the forefront of breaking this story. And he describes to us in detail what the compound was like. They said it wasn't built by amateurs. The story takes so many bizarre turns, but let's check in on this interview that I did with Ryan Morrow. It basically begins with the abduction of a disabled child, a three-year-old boy in Georgia by his father. And then he escapes. They find him at this compound in New Mexico near the border with Colorado, this remote area. And they set essentially a terrorist training camp. It's an Islamic extremist group. They're acquiring weapons. They're, they have a shooting range, even a 150-foot underground tunnel. With a, right. with a hidden escape spot. The authorities know that the fugitive is there, they think the boy's there, and all, all this is going on, but the FBI keeps stalling, saying they need probable cause to go in, even though part of the compound is on private property, and the owners of that property were like, yeah, come on in, you'll need a search warrant. They just kept delaying, and then finally, last Friday, the police in New Mexico learn of this message that the kids are starving, that they need food and water. And they say, that's it. We're not waiting on the FBI anymore. This is insane. And they went in and did a remarkably dangerous operation that, thank God, somehow did not result in a shootout. And they arrested five adults, rescued 11 kids, and they believe they have found the corpse of the disabled boy. Now we're learning more about the, the broader ramifications of this is that they were training the kids to carry out school shootings unbelievable yeah the boy that was missing uh was struggled with seizures he had a birth defect from lack of oxygen and blood flow the father took him on a walk to a park or something and then he never returned you had mentioned that there was a tip that came out from the compound that the kids were hungry who provided that tip somebody from within the group there it sounds like someone from within the group somehow i guess a text message or something went to people in georgia saying that they need food. Now, the adults are not cooperating still, so we know it wasn't like they were held against their will. The kids were too young to have those devices, so I guess it was that they thought that their communications were secure at that point. And then the New Mexico authorities learned about it, and that's when they undertook this extremely dangerous operation on this 10-acre lot. As for the exorcism, yes, the kid it needed to have his medicine twice a day. The father rejected modern medicine, and that's how you know he's exceptionally radical, because even Al-Qaeda members take medicine. And he said there has to be essentially an exorcism or, or an Islamic prayer to expel the demons responsible for his disability. And it appears to that's the, be the reason. That's why the kid uh, passed away, unfortunately. This compound and these people were on the radar of FBI for quite some time. As you said, there was a, a land dispute. They didn't need a search warrant because people that owned the land said, go ahead and, and, and search. It was a, a, a case where these people that had built a compound built some of it partially 
on these other people's land. Exactly. And every single person in law enforcement I've told this to, their mouths drop. Even when they raided the camp, some stuff that they should have seized, like a laptop and guns and video cameras, were left behind. And the question out there that we have to ask is whether this boy's death was really inevitable. If the FBI had gone in earlier because they knew since the beginning of the year that they were there, this boy might have been saved. It was not hard for me to get a good idea of how they got the weapons, to find indications of financial and identity fraud. If I can put that together as a civilian working for Clarion Project, and that's part of what we do is help the authorities, I can only imagine what resources were available to the feds. Talk to us a little bit about the compound. It's been described as a training camp with a shooting range. Neighbors had heard a lot of gunfire consistently over the course of months. The way it was set up didn't seem like the work of amateurs. They had like a tire perimeter and a bunch of stuff. Right. So at first, people were making it sound like it was just a crazy guy that abducted his son, found some other crazy people, and they were hiding out. And all my sources, including in the Muslim community that know the family, were saying there's just no way that's the case. And it looks like just a heap of garbage. But when you look at it more closely, you see a trailer that's half buried. That's done for tactical purposes. Plastic over it so that nobody could see what was going on the inside. They put shattered glass on the ground and wood with nails so that it makes it hard for people to come up to the compound so that they would hear the noise and then become alerted so they could start opening fire. Tires forming the perimeter, and the kids are just in horrible conditions, but they were shooting up until recently, and the neighbors were saying, yeah, this is bad. It doesn't take much brain work to understand that this is a horrible situation, and those neighbors are some of the bravest people on earth to try to get them evicted. You know there's Islamic extremists on your property with guns <laughs> training for war, right. and you try to get them evicted in court? I mean, that's, <laughs> that is guts. How far away are other properties? What does it look like, the landscape? Well, it's the middle of nowhere. It's at higher altitude, I'm told. The police had no way to surprise them. These guys knew they were coming. Or if they didn't, then there's some genius move on the part of police. The neighbors could see the outer part of the compound. They would even meet the kids. They thought that they saw the missing boy there in January and February. They were close enough that there was interaction and they had good eyes on the site. Obviously not what was going inside and not what was inside the underground tunnel, but enough to know that all this is there. The neighbors are understandably giving quotes out there where they're like, how did this happen? I'm still asking that. I, I don't get it. Ryan Morrow, National Security Analyst, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. One of the creepiest stories of the week, Oscar, was the release of the videotaped confession of Nicholas Cruz, who was the Parkland, Florida shooter. He shot up his high school on Valentine's Day. The videos are hours and hours and hours long. And in it, he does things like punch himself in the face and say, kill me. And he always explains to a police officer that he wants to kill himself. Let's listen to that clip. It's not the same as watching it, but hearing it, he's just as creepy. Or the voice is like outside your head. Or inside your head when you hear them? Inside. You keep the, the, uh, the gun safe locked all the time? Why do you do that? To protect myself. Protect yourself yeah. from what? From my voice. How many times has the voice talked to you while we've been in the room here together? A lot. Has the voice said jump out of the chair and do anything bad to that policeman? Saying kill yourself now. I don't really believe there is a voice, to be honest there is with you. A voice. No, I don't think there is. I'm telling you the truth. No. I mean, I feel you probably want to kill yourself because of what happened, but. No, the, the voice is telling me to kill myself. 
yeah, it's so weird, so creepy. And and the video and the transcripts really point to a person who was mentally disturbed. He had gone through the system. He asked the school for help. They denied him. Who knows what could have happened if he really got the proper treatment? Maybe all of this tragedy could have been averted. We spoke to Paula McMahon. She's a reporter for the Sun Sentinel there in Florida. And she runs down exactly what we hear in the tapes and in the transcripts. He talks a lot in there about demons in his head. He claims there was a demon voice that was talking to him. The voice told him to buy a gun, told him to hurt himself. It told him to hurt other people. He said he kind of continued to entertain this voice because it spared him from loneliness. So there was some very strange conversation in there. He was left alone in the interrogation room at times. And here in Florida, in our area of Florida, the uh, the policy is to keep the cameras rolling even when the detective is out of the room. And he spoke to himself while the detective was out of the room and said things like, kill me, I want to die, why didn't he kill me? And he seemed to be talking about this demon. And of course, the detective who interviewed him has a great deal of skepticism during the interview as to whether there really was a voice in his head. You know, at one point, the detective said something to him like, does the voice in your head tell you to take Uber to the school that day and um, Nicholas Cruz responded yes it did. It really just paints a picture of a very troubled person and that was what people suspected all along there was certain reports of him not getting the proper help that he could have gotten through the school Um, the the demons in his head he, he said that he started hearing them after his father died they intensified after his mother died so this stuff had been with him for a long time as you said, the cameras were rolling the entire time. It was like 11 hours of video. The actual interview was about six and a half hours. So they have tons of opportunities of him trying to explain what's happening. And even part of the video is going to be redacted. And there's about 30 pages that are completely blacked out of this 216 page transcript. And this is to protect some of his privacy. Is that right? Actually, under Florida law, they can release statements where he is making incriminating statements, but when it gets into the actual substance of him saying what he did when he went inside the school, there's no descriptions of the shootings, there's no descriptions of anything, like if he had any interactions with the victims in those last few minutes. It's all kind of around that. They were able to um, legally hold back anything that kind of gets into the real details of the terrible things that went on in that school that day. But he did admit guilt. He has admitted guilt. He admitted guilt in that interview with Detective John Curcio. It's very clear that he was saying he had done it. Also, like separately, his defense team has said he is guilty, he accepts responsibility, and he's willing to plead guilty in exchange for multiple life sentences. The case is really kind of coming down to now as to whether he will be executed or if he will spend the rest of his life in prison. A lot was made about the gun violence, the gun control. Obviously, the students there at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas went on a tour of the country. He bought that gun legally. They said in this interview, in this transcripts that we find out, he bought that gun for about 560 bucks, and then he bought ammo online. He said he spent about $4,000 total on his guns and ammunition, and he bought it right when he turned 18 to protect himself from that voice again. He also bought it just a few days after he was forced to leave Marjorie Stoneman Douglas because of issues with his behavior. So there's a couple of coincidences there. Again, we are, we're not going too far at this point about the voice in his head. We're, that's what he's saying in this interview, but we haven't heard from psychologists or people who've examined him to kind of talk about whether there is a, a diagnosable mental illness there or anything like that. But yes, the students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, I think everybody has been very interested in watching how they 
have turned this terrible event into something that a movement for change. And yes, one of the, the things that is particularly disturbing about this case is that this very disturbed person, I mean, the interrogation shows perhaps how disturbed he was, but there was mounds of evidence out there long before this that he was a very troubled person. He had a long history of that. And you're right, it is would be curious to see what the video shows because he maintains he has this voice in his head. And when the investigator leaves and he's talking to himself, I mean, one can only imagine that it's maybe that voice is interacting with him and he's talking back to it or something. You know, it, it's it continues to paint the picture of a, of a disturbed person. It's very interesting. The entire interview is so interesting because it, it gives us, there's nothing quite like hearing it from the horse's mouth. And we've heard all of these things along the way from people who knew him, who said, you know, that he was known by a lot of people for being cruel to animals. He had an obsession with guns. He was very upset when his mom died. His dad had died when he was very young. But there's something about when you, you hear it from someone who then went on to take the lives of 17 human beings in horrific circumstances. It certainly starts to clarify things for you in terms of how what people knew beforehand. Paula McMahon, reporter for the Sun Sentinel. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. The story that interested me most during the week was this new outbreak of Ebola in the Congo. I remember back to 2014, and it made its way to the United States. That's not the case now, but there is an outbreak, and it's in a particularly tough zone to fight. They're using an experimental vaccine to help mitigate the spread of it. We talked to Andrew Friedman. He's a science editor at Axios. The Congo just had an outbreak of Ebola in the northwest portion of the country that was declared over at the end of July. Unbeknownst to the World Health Organization, the DRC Health Ministry was tracking a few suspicious cases in a totally different part of the country. And it turned out that it is, in fact, Ebola, and it is a genetically different strain. So there's a lot of similarities to it. But it, it, it's genetically distinct enough that we know this outbreak is not a continuation of the last one. So we had one outbreak uh, that ended in July, and uh, now we have one quite worrisome outbreak right near the border between the DRC and Rwanda and the DRC and Uganda. Right now, there's a total of 43 Ebola virus cases and 34 deaths so far have been reported. Do you know what the security situation is? This is a conflict zone. This is an area where it's the largest UN peacekeeping operation. It's 20,000 UN peacekeeping troops are there. There's about 100 different armed rebel groups operating, about a million displaced people from uh, several countries in that region. And now you have an Ebola outbreak. So the World Health Organization, they're trying to set up a program to contain the outbreak while keeping in mind the security situation. There is a spike in kidnapping for ransom in this particular area. So yeah. people moving constantly around is going to make this really difficult. And as you were going to get into right now, I think, was this notion of this ring vaccination program that they were trying to get done. And this particular security situation kidnappings and conflict zone, so many people moving in and out is what's going to make this really difficult. What they're trying to do is for every patient who's a confirmed case, they need to track every person who came into contact with them within a certain time frame. So they go out several rings 
in terms of contacts, be it their mother, their grandmother, their town physician, the person who sold them something at a supermarket. So they're trying to go out further and further so that they monitor those people for potential cases. And they are using an experimental vaccine that was developed in the United States, which we used successfully twice now in Africa in an experimental setting. And they're going to plan on start using that this week and see how well they can contain it. The problem is you can't do really effective vaccination programs of this sort if you're worried about getting kidnapped when you send out a vaccination team. So they are having to coordinate with the UN peacekeepers to possibly go out in an escorted way to do this work. It is a challenge. It's a totally different challenge than they're used to. The last outbreak was a problem because it was in such far-flung remote regions. And this one is in a conflict zone, and they've never really had to face this with an Ebola outbreak, unfortunately. That uh, experimental vaccine you were mentioning is made by the pharmaceutical giant Merck. It's not approved by the FDA, though. Why has it not gone through such approval yet? They rushed this under a program that the U.S. government developed in response to the major outbreak that we saw a couple years ago. They agreed to provide a certain amount of vaccines for an experimental purpose that we could use abroad that we thought was safe and effective, but which had not yet gone through all the rigorous testing that you'd need to do it for FDA approval. So we knew enough to know that it was safe in humans, but they didn't know whether or not it was going to be truly effective in the field. Merck, from their perspective, the countries that typically have Ebola outbreaks are the Congo, are other countries in Africa. We don't typically see that here. So it wasn't their highest priority. It was the highest priority of the public health officials of the United States who are trying to come up with a vaccine that works, that responds to these outbreaks, that prevents another West Africa outbreak that became a threat to the world from ever occurring again. So the priority really was to get something out in the field that would work. So they did that, uh, I believe it was 2015, in Guinea, which helped end that outbreak. And then they did this earlier this year. And now they should be starting it really any time now in the Congo. Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for us this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.